we will, after my long introduction, be looking at Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. Um, and I just love this beautiful text. God has used this passage to teach me and to shepherd me and to really a lot equip me through the difficulties that Heather and I have had in the last year in America. Let me explain briefly what happened. Um, we spent a year and a half in the Middle East, sent from this church and another church in Illinois. And um, I won't actually summarize what we did there, but what you need to know is at the end of that year and a half, Heather was getting pretty sick. So we decided to come home. We were here last year for what we thought was a seven-week break. Not a home assignment, not a furlough, just a break. But then... Heather's struggles kind of got worse. It was like her body backlashed or there was a delayed reaction to, um, to a lot of provocations. Her struggles with stress and anxiety and traumas were way deeper than we realized. And she just was not sleeping and that was kind of unthreading a lot in her life. So we have stretched our seven-week break into a 14-month season of healing and slow, gradual restoration. Um, There were a lot of tears and frustrations and anxieties over the last year. However, I can say that we have gotten much better and we're planning to go back to the Middle East in about a month. So praise God for his healing and his restoration of us. Um, And this verse or these verses play into that because um, it was part of the bedrock theology that really got us through these difficult times. And it's about suffering. And you know what? Every one of you suffer. So this is going to be applicable, and I hope that it will be encouraging. Of course, you suffer as well, and you suffer in ways unique to your personality and your situation. So if it's helpful, let's talk afterwards and just share what we're going through and pray for each other, because it's, it's life. It's Christian life. Okay, first some general Hebrews context before we dive in. Um, This book provides its own classification. What is Hebrews? How do we we peg it if we're going to talk about the whole book? Well, um, in one of the last verses of the book, 1322, the author says something kind of funny. He says, all right, guys, I hope that you can bear up under this word of exhortation or word of encouragement. It's meant to be an encouraging message or an exhorting message. So there's kind of, those are kind of two sides of the same action. Encouragement is coming alongside with God's truth, grabbing you, pulling you up, and walking next to you, and encouraging you to move forward. Exhortation is a little bit stronger. Exhortation is meant to kind of stir us up and wake us up and use some stronger language to get us going. And those are really the same movement, but with different emphases. And you'll see that that's throughout the book of Hebrews. And our passage today tends to have both of that, the encouragement and the exhortation. Okay, so the audience, the first people to actually hear and respond to the gospel as it was proclaimed after Christ's resurrection were Jewish. And this book is written to that group. They're called, in this case, Hebrews, but they were Jews living in Jerusalem and generally in the Holy Land who believed in Christ and were under a lot of stress and persecution because they left the majority culture and the majority religion 
to follow Jesus the Messiah. They were a group out of the Jewish culture, but not a majority. So they were persecuted, and um, frankly, they were pretty worn out, this, the, the people who heard this message of encouragement, this word of encouragement. Um, they were harassed and treated and mocked for their new faith. And it seems like, as we read what was being preached to them in Hebrews, that they were ready to quit. They were ready to go back to Judaism. Or maybe they were just ready to ditch anything really religious and go to a pagan lifestyle. Do whatever they want. Eat, drink, and be merry. Um, in either case, the book of Hebrews exhorts these Jewish background believers to persist in their faith in Jesus, our great high priest. Jesus is the only way to enter God's presence in the holiest place. It's very much used as Old Testament imagery to encourage these believers. Another emphasis as we narrow our gaze is in faith. Faith is the major emphasis in the passages leading up to our passage. At the end of chapter 10, we are exhorted to hold on to our faith. There's synonyms there at the end of chapter 10 for our faith. One is our confidence. Faith is our confidence. It talks about having full assurance of faith in whatever we do. Hebrews 11, as we know, is a powerful chapter. It defines what faith is. It also defines how Old Testament believers practice, exercised faith in their context. People like Abel, Abraham, and Moses, they were convinced of God's presence. They were also convinced, fully assured of his promise. And yet, they died without seeing all of God's promises fulfilled. We see that, salvation in Christ. All of God's promises are yes in Christ. But they died still holding to that. They very much lived out the principle, we live by faith, not by sight. Um, For example, one really beautiful description of Moses in this chapter is that Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. That makes no sense. You don't see someone who's not seen, but you do through the eyes of faith. He endured all of his life by seeing him who is invisible. Our Old Testament brothers and sisters, they had hope in God, and many held to God's promises about the future, even when they suffered for it. I love the ending of this chapter. If you want to look at Hebrews eleven thirty-two to 40, it summarizes the life of faith. And some Old Testament saints had great earthly victories by their faith. It says they conquered kingdoms. That refers to David, taking out the Arameans in the north and many kingdoms for the people of Israel. By faith, they stopped the mouths of lions. That's Daniel, by his trust in God, doing that miracle. By faith, they were made strong in weakness. And this makes me think of Gideon, who frankly was kind of a wimp and a coward, and God took him and his wimpy little army, and they routed the Amalekites. Lots and lots of soldiers. They were made strong in weakness. It also says, by faith, they put foreign armies to flight, which makes me think of Elisha and things he did to keep the northern enemies away from them. By trusting God, knowing that God could do whatever he needed to protect himself and his people, he did it. However, other Old Testament saints suffered greatly on this earth, and they seem to have been defeated, also holding to the same faith. It says that they were mocked and imprisoned, and this makes me think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet was persecuted by the fellow false prophets, 
He was even put in stocks. He was thrown in a cistern waiting to be killed. Um, Others were sawn in two. This refers to Isaiah, not from the book of Isaiah, but from an extra biblical source. It says that the wicked king Manasseh cut him in half in faith. Not Manasseh's faith, but Isaiah's faith. Um, They wandered in deserts and caves. They wore sheep and goat skins, men of whom the world was not worthy. There's just some beautiful descriptions of the life of faith here. But notice there's two emphases in our Christian life. One is, yes, by faith, we can move mountains. And by faith, we can expect God to break in and show his power in this world. But by faith, we also suffer the mistreatment of unbelievers and the attacks of Satan. Both are always part of the Christian life. But today, very much, we're going to focus on the suffering part of our walk of faith. Our chapter, Hebrews 12, begins by encouraging us, not Old Testament saints, us, to run the Christian life, and not just run it, run it with endurance. Run it as a marathon for the long haul. Run by casting off our weights and our sins. This Old Testament cloud of witnesses, they were commended for their faith, and we are to imitate them. And we express our New Testament faith by looking to Jesus. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He was the perfection that, the completion that the Old Testament saints were looking for. And we have the same life of faith. Moses had to endure as seeing him who is invisible. And we endure as seeing Christ who is not with us now. He is at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. He's, he's somewhere, but he's not in our sight. We endure as seeing him who is invisible. Jesus is not only the author and completer, perfecter of our faith. He is the best example of endurance. Look at verse 3, Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If I could summarize what's come up to Hebrews 12, 4 through 11, it is what's in Hebrews 10, 35, which says this. The point is clear. Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Okay, now let's read through this and take it a verse or two at a time. See what we can learn about our trials from the book of Hebrews. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Okay. This is a very powerful way of redescribing our trials, our difficulties. We all have them, and we tend to call them a hard time or trials. Here, the author describes it as your struggle against sin. And that's really quite appropriate. Let me illustrate how trials relate to struggling against sin. Think about your Christian life. Think about your life in general. Does running this race with endurance... Does it take a lot out of you? Waiting, continuing, not giving up, running, 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 running. Do you resist and fight urges inside of you, in your heart and in your mind? These urges that often tempt you to do what is forbidden? 
Specifically, are you just sick and tired of dealing with lustful, bitter, gossiping thoughts that come up again and again and again? Are you sick of fighting that? Do you or are you tempted to judge or despise other people? I see that in myself, and it's, it, it doesn't matter. Any context can come up. I want to despise that person, or I want to judge them. It comes up all the time. Um, I had to include this. Is the long and tedious task of parenting wearing you down? It does for me sometimes. The Christian life, there's many ways to describe it, but the one angle I want to take today is the Christian life is a race, and that's what it's described in verse 1. But there's an interesting kind of meaning behind the word race. Whatever you think a race should be, it's related, it's in its root meaning, to the Greek kind of word group for struggle. A race is a struggle, and I think we know that. If you see pictures of the runners, especially near the end, they don't look happy. Their faces are contorted, and they're working hard to finish. And that's what running the race involves. It is a struggle. So let me illustrate more specifically how trials are a struggle with sin. Um, For example, let's say that your mother or your father or both of your parents are dying, and you have to care for him with a lot of extra work. You've got your routine. Oh my goodness, my parents is dying. I need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, My schedule is very full. And yet, even while you're busy, you're watching your parents slip away. That's really hard. Where does sin come in? You can struggle in this time with haste, anxiety, regret, and other such sins. They're warring inside of you, even as this trial is happening. And it's also just hard because you're painfully watching a a truth unfold. And the, the truth of that is the wages of sin is death. And every one of us sins, and the wages of that is death. You're watching it unfold before your very eyes. Another struggle against sin is, let's say your child is sick, whether it's diagnosed or not. A sickness, maybe a chronic sickness, Your child doesn't sleep well, so you, the parent, are pushed to your limits, and you lose patience. I sure do when I'm tired. You confront unmet expectations. You wanted to get so much done in the day, and you didn't, and that's really frustrating. Um, And sickness itself is a sign of the fall, that sin is unthreading our lives like that. That's a trial, but it's—we could aptly describe it as a struggle against sin. For us, as I said before, our trial, our struggle against sin— was watching the effects of sin kind of take its toll on Heather and then hit her in America and then processing all of that. She became sick with anxiety and a lot of insomnia and depression almost took her over. We were seeking God for relief. We were inviting God into past difficulties, redeeming those things in the name of Jesus. Um, And yet it took a while. She wasn't sleeping. Our son was happy and energetic and didn't know what was going on. And we're trying to shepherd him through that. Um, Here's my point in that long-winded introduction to verse 4. This text is not just talking about persecution or just about, like, temptation. It's much, much broader than that. Your struggle against sin refers to all trials. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but let's get this false attitude out of the way. Sometimes I feel a bit inferior to the original hearers of the Bible. I I feel inferior because I'm not persecuted. I don't experience what they experienced. And my life can be pretty comfortable. But we don't want to take away the punch of Scripture. This does apply to us, and its message 
speaks right to us. Please don't be anxious like me. Don't be anxious about whether it applies to you. We have our own legitimate difficulties. And we're tra- today we're trying to learn what posture to take towards our very real 21st century American struggles against sin. And yet, if you read the rest of verse 4, this encouraging portion of Scripture does not begin by applauding our titanic efforts against sin. What the author actually reminds us is, is like, you could actually have it worse. You could be struggling more. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Um, That could literally mean, like, some sort of struggle caused you to bleed a little. I think it actually means give up your life. You shed your blood. That's a term that's used a lot, and it makes us think of what Jesus had to do in his struggle against sinners. Um, That is how far Jesus had to go in his struggle against sinners. He endured the cross. He endured hostility against sinners for our greater good and for the joy set before him, and he's our example. We also have something set before us, and it's a race. And as we look to Jesus, we can be equipped in the long haul for the long term in our struggles for the glory of God. All right, let's look at verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. These verses of the Prover- from the Proverbs were given to encourage us. Yes, historically, in 1000 BC, Solomon spoke to one of his sons, his male child, but it applies to all the children of God, obviously, and that's why it's used here. The scriptures say that the child of God should not regard lightly the, quote, discipline of the Lord. Okay, so as if we're kind of already redefining trials. Trials are a struggle against sin, but he's adding a whole new idea, the discipline of the Lord. What's the relationship between the discipline of the Lord and our trials? Um, We're going to have to kind of dive in and go underwater and explore this idea because it's, it's central to everything that comes after this. First, let's consider how the the original language word, which is translated discipline, how is it used elsewhere in the New Testament? That's a good key. What's, what is this idea? Let's see how it's used by other inspired authors. Um, it is translated elsewhere in the New Testament. Instruction, the instruction of the Lord. Guidance, the guidance of the Lord. Correction or discipline. Um, Another way to figure out what this concept means is to look at synonyms. So there's some synonyms in these Proverbs verses that narrow the meaning of it. One is rebuking, and one is chastising. Okay, so it seems like if we kind of wanted to make a general term of what this thing is that God is exercising on us, we could call it instruction. That's a good general term, but... As I read our passage, this is not just instruction. This is instruction that hurts. Instruction that can be painful or difficult. So um, what do you know? We've come full circle. I think the best way to translate this is the word that's in the ESV, discipline. So we've proven that discipline is a good translation, but what do we do with that word? 
um, I, think, I think that most of us now, we still need to grapple with the connotation of the word discipline. And I'm sorry to bring in a technical linguistic term, but it's actually really fun, I promise, to do this. Um, connotation refers not to the meaning or the reference of a word, but to kind of its feeling, its psychological or emotional power. And words, and most words especially, have a sort of feel to them. So one example is the word hit versus the word strike. Strike is stronger feeling. You may exert the exact same amount of force, but if you say he was hit by a car, he was struck by a car, there's a different feeling in that word. One feels stronger than the other. Another, and I've seen this used even by ISIS um, in Arabic, but put into translation, they don't just say, we're going to kill so-and-so. They say, we're going to slaughter them. And slaughter has a much more bloody, kind of yucky connotation to it. It's the same act, but, oh, we didn't kill him, we slaughtered him. And that's what the connotation does to us. Another example is, um, Austin is my name, but I could actually say Austin is my designation. But designation has a very stuffy academic feel to it. That's its connotation. It's referring to the same word. Um, My point is words have different connotations, and it's just possible that the connotations we have with the word discipline do not really match the connotations of the word discipline in the Bible. So how do we change it? We read the Bible. We read the Bible in many places. We renew our minds. Part of renewing our minds is recognizing the differences in connotation between biblical words, biblical concepts, and then the words that we use today. Another great example is love. Does love, the way we feel about the word love, kind of match the way it would have felt back then? Do we need to adjust? The word justice, does that match? Freedom? Or more importantly, the word God. What does the word God conjure up? What should it conjure up? Um, there's a joy in reading and rereading and getting into the scriptures and asking for understanding, and you begin to kind of feel the way you ought about some of these words. And here's my point, because I think I know where we come from with the word discipline. The discipline of the Lord in this passage and elsewhere does not refer exclusively to being punished by God for disobeying him. We're going to have to retrain our hearts and our minds to approach this word differently. Discipline is actually a good word, not a bad word. Um, Hebrews 12, if you read it, it begins with the assumption that we are doing right, that we are on the narrow path and we are striving and struggling on the narrow and straight path of discipleship. So, of course, of course we will sin along the way. Um, That's just life in this fallen world. But the discipline of the Lord is not focusing on, you have sinned, God's going to punish you right now. It's not the emphasis. Um, I I see the way I bring my false connotations into the word disciplines in the way I sometimes speak to my son. I say, David, please obey me now, or I will discipline you. What I've done is I've taken a word that refers to something broad and focused its meaning. What I really mean is, David, obey me now, or I will punish you. That's one act. Discipline is broader than just punishment, and that's my point. Truly, when I discipline David, I'm teaching him. I'm giving him instructions to obey. I'm explaining things to him. Maybe I punished you, but why? What's what's the bigger agenda? 
of discipline here. Um, also, when I praise him and affirm him for obedience, that's part of discipline. Um, a good synonym is training. If you just want to, you know, switch words, the word training is very helpful. Do not despise the Lord's training of you. Um, discipline is not just spanking and timeouts. Don't think of it that way. And good fathers, they train their children towards maturity. No child just figures out the way of wisdom and sensible adult living. Even if the child knows it, he doesn't always choose it. Golly, even when we know it, we don't even choose it as grown-ups. One fundamental pillar of our faith is that we're all born in sin. Let's not deceive ourselves. We're all born in sin. But also the proverb speaks about folly in a child's heart that needs to be trained out of them. Um, so again, it's easy to think of the discipline of the Lord or fatherly discipline as spanking or timeouts or some sort of punishment. But it's much bigger than that. The discipline of the Lord refers to the whole process of God teaching us, training us, us listening, us forgetting, us being reminded, us stumbling, God helping us up. There may be punishment involved, but it, it, it's for a purpose. It's not just punishment. It's the whole process. And what's interesting or what's really encouraging about this process of discipline is it's not a new thing. So Deuteronomy 8, 5, Moses is speaking to the people of God very much. This is prophetic preaching at its finest, these, these passages. And in 8, 5, he tells the Israelites, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. The Lord is doing this same thing with Israel. And this is the way God has always treated his people. Old Testament Israel wasn't supposed to avoid struggling with sin. They were also part of God's broader training program. So then the question, why, still, why is discipline from God a good thing? Like it sounds exhausting. It sounds difficult. Why is it good? Well, if you read the, the quotation from the Proverbs, it actually teaches us that the Lord's discipline, the Lord's training is a sign of his love. God accepts children into his family, and as part of that, they, are, they participate in his training. And we may need to let this sink in. It seems sort of counterintuitive. Your struggle against sin and your growth in Christ's likeness and the pain that you feel as a follower of Christ, it actually shows that you are God's beloved child. Yes, it hurts to grow up. And it can involve reproving or chastising, as is mentioned in Proverbs. But it's actually a sign of God's true, committed, stable love for us. One more verse, just to show that this idea, though shocking, is very much grounded in God's work. Revelation 3.19 is worth attending to. Um, it says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline so, church, be zealous and repent. These words have some weight to them because this is the, these are the words of the risen Christ to a first century church. Risen Christ to church. In other words, extremely applicable. Very much in our ballpark. Um, it's true. Old Testament um, and Hebrews in, in Revelation as well. Related to this, then, if, if God's training of us is a sign of his love, we may also need to do a little connotation exercise with the word love. 
I have felt, maybe it's true for you, I've kind of picked this up in the culture, we tend to view love as exclusively romantic and kind of non-interfering. I love you, and so I'm hands-off. Like, I want to be close to you, but I'm not going to change who you are. Who am I? I just, I love you, and I'm not going to deal with that. I don't, that's not biblical, and that's not the right feel to the word love. God's love moved him to act, and he sent his son for the redemption of um, an elect in the world. But he also, that, and that love gives us eternal life. It's amazing, it's kind, it's giving. That same kind of love also has moved God to cultivate daily new life in us in Christ. It's the same kind of love that sent Jesus and sanctifies us. Um, God loves us enough to bring about and ordain and energize different ways for us to grow. He doesn't want to leave us where we are. So the point is this. Divine love is not content to allow us to continue in our harmful, sinful habits. God's love tackles the hard things in our lives. But that's love. That's the same love that sent Jesus, is the love that gets in and through trials works a lot of immaturity out of us. Okay, let's read on because this discipline idea is developed in verses 7 through 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. We're exhorted to endure because the endurance is necessary for discipline. We are participating in God's training program, if you will. Um, discipline should be the part, a part of every family. It's definitely a part of God's family. He treats all his children in a fatherly, instructing, maturing sort of way. And verse 8 says it opposite. If you don't have the Lord's discipline in your life, you're not his son. Every other true child of God experiences God's training. So why would you want special privileges? All of us need this. It takes some humility, but we need to admit, yes, Lord, we all need your training. Here's another issue. We must be careful not to accept a very subtle form of the prosperity gospel. What I mean by that is the blatant prosperity gospel is preached on a lot of television sets, and these preachers are saying it is God's will that every one of his believers— on this earth has health and wealth and wisdom and success and pretty much in the world's terms. God, that is God's will. That's how he blesses us and loves us. Um, those are the ideal expressions in this fallen world. Um, but that's just not true, and I think you know that. Every day with God is not like Christmas morning. A lot of days with God are like PE class. Maybe not particularly interesting. You're drilling or you're working towards something, and it's daily, and it just continues. You're not just getting thrown gifts, 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 till you're drowning. Um, however, I have seen myself fall victim to a more subtle form of prosperity thinking. Sometimes I think that if I do the right thing in a given instance, then God must, will, as a father, reward me with something physical, something material he must give it to me. Um, here's some great examples. So let's say I get up at 6 a.m. in the morning and I uh, let my wife sleep and I play with my son. 
until 7.30, so she gets to rest. Oh, that's great. And I play with them, and we're really imaginative, and we play with the toys, and we're laughing and having a good time. I'd rather do something else. I'd rather sleep, but I'm going to sacrifice and do this for him. Then I think, okay, if I do that for God, God's going to give me a good day at work. Good, like, calm, like, no problems, like, an easy commute, and when I get there, people are just going to be high-fiving me, and, like, things are easy. Um, another example, if in the evening time I get home from work, David goes to bed, and my wife is really struggling. She needs prayer. She needs someone to listen to her. And golly, I had other plans. I wanted to do X, Y, and Z thing for myself. And I say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to shelve that, and I'm going to abide with my wife in the difficulty. We're going to pray. We're going to seek the Lord. Then I think, ah, okay, God, now you can give me a good night of sleep. I've, I've earned it, you know, and you, you have to give it to me, right? Like, that's what you do. You are a good father who rewards us with physical, you know, blessings. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe I write a long letter to my wayward sister and just say, I'm heartbroken for you. I don't like the choices you're making. I love you. I'm committed to you. But what you're doing is harming yourself. Please, please leave what you're doing and embrace Christ. If I do that, does that mean God will then she will listen to me? Or does that mean she won't actually hurt me in her response? Maybe, maybe not. Or more personally, let's say we choose to leave America and go to the Middle East and serve the Lord there. We were protected in a certain sense, but we also endured a lot of trials. We left the field early and came back for a long time. And was that part of God's economy in this world? Was that good or bad? I do we think that because we go there, we're going to be, like, comfortable? Definitely not. That's a false way of thinking. God does not keep accounts in that way. It's, some of it's mysterious. We just don't know how he's working. The other side is to think, well, I must be suffering because of sin. Like, I must be suffering because I'm bearing some load of unconfessed sin in my life. And until I get rid of this, the hammer is going to keep falling on my life. Once I confess it, the problem goes away. That may happen sometimes, but that's, not, that's just not a rule, of, a rule for Christian life. It may be that just like Job, you are walking in the straight path and you are still suffering. That's part of life in this fallen world, and we need to accept this. God does not keep accounts in that way either. So remember, Lamentations 3.33 says, God does not willingly afflict us. He's not there trying to punish us. At the same time, we don't have to live our earthly life thinking that God is indebted to us in heaven to shower down all the physical blessings that we want in exchange for good works. That's just not quite how it works. Um, we who take up our crosses to follow Christ daily, we who are seeking the everlasting city, and we who have our citizenship in heaven should not expect all of the delights and pleasures of heaven now. We don't want to confuse the difference there. Okay, let's move on to the next two verses, 9 and 10. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits? and live. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Our earthly fathers, 
I will include mothers in this as well. Our parents were put into our lives to discipline us, to train us and mature us. And in most cases, we've come to recognize that they were working hard at that and did a good job. You've probably heard the observation that when you're a kid, you think your parents are amazing. They're just incredible. They're heroes. They're the strongest. They're the best. And then you get older, you get to the teenage years, and they begin to question that and say, no, my parents, maybe they're okay, whatever, but, you know, they're kind of old-fashioned. They don't understand me in my, in my existential reality, who I am. They don't, they, don't, they don't really know me. And it's hard to respect. That can be hard in the teenage years to respect your parents. And then usually that slowly comes back as you get older and grow out of that, and especially when you have kids yourself. And you're raising a little human, and you say, this is so hard oh my goodness, I was a little human and my parents raised me and I'm alive and that's like amazing. So it's worth mentioning that this is kind of what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Our parents trained us and we respect them for that. However, what if I don't actually respect my earthly father? Perhaps he was too harsh. Perhaps he was too passive. In other words, for you, it's possible if your father was harsh, discipline is punishment. Like, my father didn't train me, he just hit me. Or my father was just, I never could meet his expectations. That's possible. Or it could be, you know what? Um, My dad simply did not train me. He wasn't there. Um, I never felt like I was becoming a man or a woman because he was hands-off. He was super, super busy. Um, This is very possible, and you know what? No earthly father can avoid being either harsh or passive in some sense because we're imperfect and we're flawed, and um, we can't avoid that. So this is one of those issues where, again, we need a connotation exercise. We need to strive to formulate our view of God as father from the scriptures. No earthly father can quite achieve the level of fatherhood that God has. So even if calling God father is difficult or you bring in some baggage— Remember, he sets the standard, and his ways, if you are repeatedly exposed to his ways and his truth, you can see his true character and begin to form a true view of fatherhood from that. Perhaps you picture your dad scowling at you. Perhaps you don't really picture your dad at all, or he's kind of away or busy. But man, I pray that you can confidently embrace the truth, that your heavenly father actually regards you with a warm and accepting smile. In Christ, you are adopted into his family, and you can have confidence. You're put right with God. You are accepted by him. I think we'll be spending the rest of our lives, whatever our age, growing in the confidence that God is good, and that he loves us, and he accepts each one of us. We're going to spend our whole lives growing in that confidence, and sometimes it helps to hear it from another person. Hey, outside voice speaking to you now. Listen, God loves you. He accepts you. Yes, you're suffering. Yes, you sin, but press on. We need that in our church. Now, the comparison will never be exact anyway, because we had earthly fathers, and God is our heavenly father, or as he's called here, the father of spirits. Um, Our parents tried to discipline us well, according to their good sense and personal strengths, but God is our earthly father, so shouldn't we respect him more? He will finish what he began in us, always. And the discipline of the Father also has a spiritual goal that we may not get in our childhood, earthly childhood, 
that we may share his holiness. That is a great word to put in here, holiness, and it clumps it in with the larger theological category of sanctification. This is a sanctification text. And every day of your life is a sanctification exercise. It's the great goal of our struggles against sin and our trials that we would become more holy, more godlike. We're urged in verse 9 to subject ourselves to it. And here's the issue. It's possible to go through a trial, go through a difficult season, to struggle against sin, and not really to grow from it because we're not subjecting ourselves to the suffering and the training that comes with it. It's possible to kind of whine about it or wiggle out of it or even seek sort of false gods to give us some comfort from the difficulty or maybe praying, God, you need to take this away right now. If you don't take this away right now, you know, I'm full of doubt. Like, God is working things in us, and we need to submit to it. And that can take some humility, because what that means to say is, we are immature. We're not as mature as we ought to be, and we need to recognize in the difficult times in life, God is shaping and forming Christ in us, and we need to admit, you know what? I need this. I need this now. Even tying into what Brent said last week, it's very possible that we are more in the kingdom of the world than the kingdom of God. And God needs to work out that thinking. No, you're not. You are my child, and my values and my priorities should define your life, not those of this world. So he works it out of us. Um, Okay, so here's a question. Was discipline a reality for Jesus? Let's flip back to Hebrews 5.8 or look at it on the screen. Was discipline a reality for Jesus? Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Meditate on that for just a sec. He, Jesus, learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. Yes, he did, actually. And we see that suffering, God has ordained suffering in this world as a major way for us to grow in holiness, in faith, in maturity. It's true for Israel. It was true for Israel. It's true for the church. It was even true for the Son of God. So we will not escape it. It is part of God's design. If you find me, or here's my challenge, find me a Christian who has endured suffering submitting to God's training in the process, and you've got a mature Christian. It's not as simple as knowing the content of the Bible that produces a mature Christian. It's submitting to God's training through suffering. Um, Quick question, maybe, that arises is, okay, is this all that suffering is? In other words, is Is the discipline of the Lord the reason for every difficulty in the world? And I don't think so. It's more complicated than that. So, for example, satanic activity is another big reason for suffering in the world. For whatever reason, God has given sovereignty, limited sovereignty, to the devil to work his will on this world. And he prowls around like a roaring lion, and 1 John says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So, um... Within the parameters that God has set, Satan can wreak havoc in our lives and try to unravel it. Um, And that's one reason for your suffering. Another reason is simply, yes, we could be suffering the consequences of sin that we've committed. 
adultery would likely result in divorce. Gossip could bring about a totally broken relationship, and we may just have to bear that as we've sinned. And there's probably a host of other sufferings that we could put labels to, or we're just not sure. However, here's my point. Any painful experience, whatever its source, can be used to form Christ in you. So don't worry about categorizing it. Just know that whatever you're suffering, God can use it to train you towards Christ-likeness. Okay, last verse, Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord's discipline is painful, and it hurts when we experience it. However, one way to endure is to remember that it's temporary. If we go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it speaks about a way of escape. When you are tempted, God will provide a way of escape. I think more or less what this is referring to is that God has ordained your trials, and they are of limited duration. They don't last forever, and more importantly, they're not more than you can bear. You, plural, I should say, more than you can bear. You should be seeking to get your, your burdens borne by people in the church as well, but it's temporary. It's not going to last forever, and that it can give way to good things in the end. Um, we know that we will share his holiness if we submit to trials, but what's the other benefit? It's also worded here that it can bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Think about that. Um, do you want more practical righteousness in your daily life? Do you want peace and inward calm in the face of provocation, in the face of stress, in the face of conflict? Man, I want this every day. I hope that this is something that God will work into my life through trials. Again, trials are a necessary opportunity for maturity in this earth. Okay, one more kind of side note. So, Austin, do we seek out suffering? Do we then take the initiative to put ourselves in hard situations so that we grow? Not exactly. I mean, no, we don't just suffer for suffering's sake. That's not what grows you. It's submitting to God's training through the suffering. Um, if I, I kind of thought this way when I was in high school, and it was a little weird, but if you feel like you're not suffering enough, just don't worry. Plenty will come to you. If you're not feeling something like right at this moment, don't worry. Just run the Christian race with endurance, and it will come to you. It will come to you. Don't worry. If you feel inferior because you're not like the first century Hebrews who, you know, their houses got plundered and they were mocked, and don't worry. God knows your situation. Just walk with him. And if you're actually truly walking with him in your relationships, in your world, you'll suffer. So don't worry about it. Um, also, I should say, I think there's room in all of this for initiative in what we might call the spiritual disciplines. Solitude, fasting, prayer, giving, serving. That's a little different. That's you taking the initiative. You're not trying to hurt yourself, but you're trying to train your own self in the ways of godliness so that when a crisis does come, you're ready. And so that you can practice your communion with Christ by taking the initiative. I think there's a role in this too, and that's why we call it spiritual disciplines. Um, so at the end of the day, it talks about, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's possible to not be trained by it, but it's possible that it will take. And that's my prayer for myself, for Heather, for this congregation, that 
Yes, you have trials, and I want to hear about them, but let's pray that through the difficulty, that training program, it'll take, and it'll set in, and soon enough, you'll start seeing the peaceful fruit of righteousness and the holiness of God. That's my prayer for every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this church. Um, I know that so many are just struggling along in the straight path of discipleship, and I ask that you would lift their drooping hands, strengthen their weak knees, make straight paths for their feet, so that we won't be lame and put out of joint, but be healed. Please continue to heal us, strengthen us. Please use the people in this room to remind us of the truth that suffering is not mean we have a load of unconfessed sin. Suffering does not mean you don't love us. It actually means you love us. I ask that your discipline would take in our hearts and that we can mature through it and through that glorify your name more. In the name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You're dismissed.